Rose, why are you trying to enable criminals to do anything untracked? Do you know the Yes Chad meme? (laughs) (laughs) All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to, and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Rose, thank you so much for coming through. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you in person. Yeah. Thanks so much. Totally. So DarkFi first hit my radar, I think a few months ago now, and the Agorism Journal as well. I wrote about both of them in the Other Life newsletter. And I'm very interested in stuff like that. I was immediately uh, intrigued and interested because I've been joking for a long time now on the podcast and in the newsletter about just how sick I am of the current kind of saccharine, naive happy-go-lucky crypto culture where it's like every, everything is like these these stupid little like smiling animals and and this like everyone we're going to make it and everyone's going to get rich and this is like it's just so uh gross to me because the real underlying radical core of of crypto is is it's not this happy-go-lucky everything smiles and rainbows there's like a hard um conflictual core to it there there is a dark side to crypto that currently is just totally neglected. You just don't see many people repping that radical dark core of crypto culture. So when I see things like DarkFi, when I see things like the Agorism Journal, I'm like, I pay extra attention to it and I'm very interested in it. So um, you're one of the people on the team with DarkFi, right? And you also uh, are a part of the Agorism Journal. So yeah, I'm excited to talk with you and learn more about what's going on behind the scenes of these projects, what you all are up to, and just learn more about, you know, you and, and this kind of dark, wing of crypto, if you will. So why don't we just start by telling the audience a little bit about um, what is DarkFi exactly? You know, I uh, on a surface level, it's obviously some kind of uh, uh, suite of, of smart contracts or something like this for to facilitate uh, private DeFi operations. Um, that's maybe a, a simple way to summarize it. But um, it wasn't obvious to me what exactly it is or how it works. Like, um, is it built to operate with ETH or Monero or like what is it exactly? Maybe unfold, sure. unfold that. Um, so I'll preface this with just by saying that, you know, we're very early stage. So I would describe the current state state of DarkFi as DevNet. So that means we have like DarkFi running uh, amongst ourselves the dev team but it's not at the stage yet where like it's not at a public testnet stage okay or uh or even you know it's quite far from mainnet so uh in terms of what it is um it's a layer one blockchain so like you know uh ethereum or monero or anything like this um but it's 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 anonymity focused um right and it allows um, or will allow developers to um, deploy anonymous applications. Um, so the primary technique that we use for that is zero knowledge, but we also combine uh, and will combine a host of different kinds of um, 
uh, cryptographic techniques to hide information in such a way that allows developers to um, create like very featureful applications. Okay. Um, so that's including like things like m- multi-party computation, homomorphic encryption, um, and you know, with a blockchain that is supporting um, these kinds of techniques and enforcing um, the various like con- necessary consensus checks on on those techniques. Okay. Okay. Great. And now you mentioned zero knowledge. We should probably unpack this a little bit for people. This is really really important for the whole sure. kind of dark fi vision. So what what exactly is a zero knowledge proof? And specifically, we're talking about zk snarks. Is that right? Yeah, in so, our case, we're talking so, about yeah. So so what are these things? Yep. So uh, really important, significant um, concept and like phenomena right. in inside of crypto. Um, they've you know been around in in various forms. They kind of track back actually to Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Um, but uh, and then they were written about in the 90s kind of theoretically by cryptographers um, but it was only recently now in crypto that they've had a real life uh, tangible application so you've seen this kind of Cambrian explosion of research around zero knowledge proofs um, by these cryptographers who are like finally you know getting a lot of interest and a lot of funding for these techniques because of how easily they apply to blockchain so essentially what it is is uh, it's a type of, it's like a class of um, cryptographic algorithms that enable you to um, create these kind of proofs where you can, um, and they're not necessarily anonymous, but we, we talk about that after. But, um, you know, in our case, you have a proof and you can say that a computation occurred in a certain way. Uh, without revealing any other information. So that's that's like significant because like if you look at something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin achieves um, consensus by it requires that every full node has it has to keep track of every transaction that happened. So it it independently verifies it has all the data it independently goes through it and verifies that everything was correct. But with zero knowledge, you don't have to have the actual data in order to to uh, know that happened correctly. You don't have to rerun the computation. Right. You just have a proof and you just verify the proof is correct. So you don't need all that data, which means it's very important technique. It's used a lot in uh, rollups, you know, on ETH now. You've got like... Um, for ZK Sync is a big one, but other things like Starkware is another approach using Starks. Um, but basically, you know, you can have a, a super succinct uh, zero knowledge proof that confirms that, you know, transactions have happened correctly, but n- no other information. Right. Um, but in the case of DarkFi, like we basically, we can use this to design anonymous applications. Okay. Yeah. Right. So this gets really interesting when you think this through, because what it basically means is that in the long run, as the zero proof technologies become more and more ubiquitous, you can imagine the entire economy basically run on these on on an essentially anonymous layer where so I can buy a house, I can pay rent, I can uh, buy goods and services all using ZK snarks in such a way that no one can actually trace any of the transactions back to Justin Murphy possibly right that's that's like the long run exactly um, expectation for so, this type so of thing. this is like this is the agora you know it's like it's like the counter economy which is what you know you mentioned the algorithm journal samuel l conkin um talked about back in the, the 70s and 80s which was like essentially um you know markets that exist independently of any kind of state or surveillance system um a kind of like a parallel economy that exists alongside but distinct from 
the the state-based economy. So that's that's what zero knowledge enables, um, and not just financial, but all kinds of applications. Um, and what what's really interesting uh, is that so far in 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 blockchain we've been designing in this paradigm of like okay everyone has to have all of the data to to verify that that everything's correct so we have this kind kind of everything everything on all the data is public and known and we use that for example in AMMs like in order to calculate what is the price that your trade is going to execute at you need to know all of the assets in the pool, all of the amounts, all the transactions that happen. You need to have this global state um, and you need to be constantly keeping track of it. Uh, whereas when it comes to what we call a dark fight, anonymous engineering, it's like we have to rethink how do we design applications in an environment where we have imperfect information or hidden information. Um, so there's some things that you have to like fundamentally like reconceptualize. Uh, like a lot of the uh, a lot of the apps that are built on crypto now uh, won't run like not naively. Like AMMs, for example, you can't just put them in zk and it is it's not going to work. You know, they, you have to work your way. There's bad. There's some bad analogs in the zk worlds. Um, no, no good solution. Um, actually, we need to evolve new concepts and new kinds of uh, like uh, trustless, anonymous uh, trading um, which to is why replace you, the AMM. Which is why you need a layer one blockchain for this. Yep. Um, basically, the layer one blockchain gives us that flexibility, but it also, it's like, we want to have the ability to, because the zero knowledge, it's not just about the the like proving and verifying interaction, interactive step we actually use the blockchain to enforce like constraints related to those proofs. So, you know, that's why it's just way easier for us to do it on a layer one. Um, though, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of debate, a lot of people who are, who are more into layer twos and, you know, it's an ongoing discussion. Right. Sure. So, I mean, what's your diagnosis of the, the privacy technology in crypto right now, such that, whatever the current projects are doing wrong or inadequately, you're going to do differently. In other words, I guess what I'm driving at is that it kind of seems like the privacy projects in crypto haven't really taken off. Yes. And some people make the argument that actually people don't care about privacy. People are actually pretty content um, to give all that away for convenience or whatever. So you look at things like Monero and Zcash or whatever, there are these pockets of of energy and attention and, and development effort being put into privacy related things in crypto, but they seem like they they seem like they're not taking off. So I'm I'm curious like why is that? What's your kind of diagnosis of that and why would DarkFi be different? Sure. Um well, there's a few things to kind of unpack there. But one is that um I see you know Monero and Zcash both, but Monero especially as a kind of sleeping giant. Um, I'm I'm quite bullish on the the privacy coins, even if I have some critiques of them. Sure. Um, I I think that you know there's basically a process which is going to play out where which DarkFi is kind of positioning itself for, which is that um, we're anticipating a kind of um, like shock event type event hmm. that's gonna. Um, shift a lot of liquidity into anonymous and private uh, crypto coins. Interesting. So that might be uh, some kind of regulatory shock. It might be more like a like a geopolitical or a kind of combination. I think it's probably going to be like combinations, you know, the increased complexity causes like regulatory efforts to become like increasingly 
totalitarian um, and that push is is actually what triggers it's like the catalyst for um, you know what we call like dark fire like going dark um, so Interesting. there's this like parallel development of anonymity techniques and surveillance um, where the more kind of uh, the more invasive surveillance becomes the more anonymity te- techniques must become more sophisticated uh, and so we've seen that playing out in parallel but I think basically over time that leads to um, a kind of tipping point where um, there's some kind of conflict that emerges where surveillance attempts to like crack down on anonymity and by doing so it's like justifying anonymity and it becomes this kind of death spiral for like the surveillance uh, okay process. fascinating so you yeah. have this kind of larger meta narrative or larger thesis yeah. Yeah. um that that you see dark fi as a bet on and so you you kind of don't agree with the premise that something like monero is not taking off you just think it's not taking off yet and that yeah. these are sleeping giants so okay yes. I, a few questions on this since you're you know very um you know you paid a lot of attention to the space and you're working in it well, i i listened to one of your talks um in the monero community and uh you, i one thing i'm curious about is uh, for someone who doesn't know anything about this space, why is Monero better than Zcash? Yeah, okay. So I would say that Monero is better than Zcash insofar as it has a genuinely grassroots um, community and it has a lot of um, it has a lot of support on the darknet markets. Um, and, you know, just in general, I think it has more transactions per day than Zcash. Um, and the community itself is very is very vibrant. It's very grassroots. Zcash they have a different approach. It's kind of it's a company. You know, it's Silicon Valley. Um, this has had a lasting effect on the formation of their community. So if you go on to the Zcash forum, uh, it, there's less of an organic engagement. It's more like um, okay. It's 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 a bit more forced. Um, so I think that the, the the community of Monero is much healthier. You know, they also had like a fair launch, much like Bitcoin, whereas Zcash, it was, um, there was like a, they, they did this, in fairness, they were experimenting and, and I think it should be commended, but they did this founder's fee uh-huh. where the block, with each block reward, there was a portion that was paid out, paid out to the founders, like investors and uh, I see. The, the, the dev team and so on. And um, that actually... Uh, kind of anecdotally, ended up being a big source of why we have so much innovation in ZK because they had this consistent stream of funding and their cryptographers and developers, which is the world's finest when it comes to zero knowledge research, were just able to like slowly innovate. So, you know, all due respect to Zcash, Uh but um, they did do that uh, and that made, it was a very inflationary coin. In the early days, it's now had a halvening. It's getting less inflationary. It's, I'm kind of more bullish these days, especially with the shift to proof of stake. Okay. But Monero, um, you know, actually, in fairness, Monero is also is 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 it doesn't it's a doesn't have a hard. It's not deflationary. It's an inflationary currency. I see. So you know, you could argue that the token engineering of those two projects was also a, a kind of a held them back somewhat. I see. And so will DarkFi be, which it's a Blair one, so presumably it's going to have a token. Hmm. Is that going to be competing with Monero and Zcash or you think it's going to bring in Monero and Zcash into it somehow? No, or? We, we, we see them like the, we see them as our, our earliest community, like our, our, uh, our allies and our comrades. Um, so, you know, we, you know, we want it to be, 
there they we see Monero especially and Zcash, although Zcash is is kind of innovating a bit more in this regard, but we see them as uh more like the money kind of thing. Uh whereas DarkFi is not money, it's like um it's like apps. Right. So it's kind of like the relation between Bitcoin and ETH. Although a lot of Bitcoiners hate ETH, right, right. they shouldn't because it's like they're not in competition. They're compatible. But realistically, won't the DarkFi token be competing to absorb that 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 money function? In the to the extent that if you're longing privacy, mm-hmm. then you know you might you might say that like oh you're gonna. But I don't see these things as like necessarily zero sum. Sure. You know, like if I wanted to long privacy. Um, I might long uh, like a, like a few different coins, sure. you know, um, and they tend to track each other. But you know, I'm I'm still I'm still I'm still more bullish. Uh, okay, so I'm really interested in this larger thesis that you and the Darkfi team have around. You basically said that as surveillance gets worse, it's going to force more and more people into uh, privacy uh, tokens and and you know, Darkfi kind of DeFi operations. Yeah. Now there is a counter argument which I'd love to hear your perspective on, which is that as surveillance gets worse. It's going to be harder and harder to uh, viably opt into these darknet operations. And so one representative of this argument, I think actually very recently, uh, Curtis Jarvin published a blog post that, that talks about this. I think if I recall correctly, uh, he introduces this vocabulary of he, he, he refers to white chains and black chains, mm-hmm. meaning his implication and what he suggests in the article is that um, you might see a bifurcation where there's just going to be blockchains you're allowed legally to operate on. And then there's going to be blockchains where you're legally blacklisted. So if you have any of your wealth or, you know, uh, tokens going through a blacklisted blockchain, you can, that can just be considered illegal. Um, if anything goes in and out or of that, like dark net, right. Um, is that something surely you've thought about this, you know, like why would that not happen? Uh, it seems like also plausible that, um, private privacy oriented crypto will be more and more snuffed out as surveillance becomes stronger and regulation sets in. Yeah, so I, I actually agree with uh, Yarvin. Uh, I haven't read that um, blog post, but I'm it was like last really week, interested. I think, yeah. Oh, sweet! I will check that out because it, it's very connected to like what we describe, like RegFi and DarkFi. Okay. You know, so where DarkFi, it's the name of a project, but it's also this kind of phenomena, which is like the what what Yarvin calls blockchains. You know, the the kind of um, uh, extra uh, legal, um, uh, counter-economic, like agoric dark spaces, which are outside the realm of the state. Um, you know, we, we, yeah, we, we do anticipate that that, that will be like, um, that they'll at some point be, you know, for example, illegal. Um, but you know, it's kind of when, I guess I'm not confident that their being illegal will make them inaccessible. I think it will actually be more bullish for them in a way, in, in the same way, it's like, you, well, there's a few different things. Yeah. There's this like crypto hard to ban, kind of like torrents, you know, it's like, there's a there's an extent where the more kind of uh, uh, all, all pervasive and the more complex these like surveillance and regulatory efforts become, also the more futile, and they kind of collapse under the weight of their own complexity. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the process that we're kind of banking on. So let's play this out. So let's say, you know, tomorrow the U.S. federal government says like Monero and Zcash are illegal, mm. right? So probably if that kind of law were decreed, 
the the value of these tokens would go down very precipitously, presumably, right? But in your mon- in your mental model, it's like okay, that's a short term hit. Yeah. What that's actually going to do, you think, is uh, make more people devote more effort and resources into going further into uh, these privacy technologies. Yes. You don't think it could just make people scared and like, oh, I'm not messing with any of this and it could suck all the energy out of this engineering and development. Probably a bit of both. But, um, you know, it's kind of like, say, what happens if if the state, if the nation state tries to ban a language or a culture, you know, they say it's illegal, you know, it's illegal to be Kurdish, for example, Uh, like, or it's illegal to be Irish or like there's Catalonian, there's many, many examples. Like what happens in that case? Um, What usually happens is a kind of radicalization process where, um, people recognize it as unjust and they basically, um, they no longer see those laws as legitimate and they begin to practice their own laws, um, which, you know, I think is a really healthy process. I see it as right. a way for, for crypto actually to assert its own, um, uh, its own kind of um, legacy and its own uh, logic, which is distinct from that of this uh, this kind of state-based system. Right, because in a way, I mean, the government can ban and prosecute transactions, I guess, going out of the dark nets. But in a way, they, they can't prosecute going into it, right? So you could go into the dark nets and never come out, mm. and then you're safe, mm. right? So I guess what you're kind of saying is that even if they were to crack down as aggressively as possible, they're only going to be able to monitor and prosecute at at the level where people are trying to come out of it. But you're saying like, oh, well, the people that are in it and want to stay in it, they're just going to be forced to stay in it all the more. You know, (laughs) like, so so if if they really crack down, it could just be like, if you want to have any privacy, you can only interact with other people who are committed to privacy. Hmm. So in a way, it would it would kind of you know uh, accelerate the contradictions to to use yes. the, uh, the the famous uh, Leninist um, <laughs> formulation, right? Is that is that kind of the model, right? Like it would it might push out the weak willed and the weak hearted, yes. um, but if you actually want to have any sense of privacy over your you know data or transactions, then you might just decide, okay, I'm only gonna interact with other privacy focused operations and then they're they really can't prosecute you ever because you just never leave that world Mm. i guess is that that, i guess that's your dialectical model that would be one way so like the thing is when you have money on the on some anonymous um blockchain or wherever and then if you want to use it to buy a house Mm -hmm. it's difficult if you're going through the banks because you it's hard to pass the KYC AML regulation because you can't say you like with Bitcoin, it's easier because you can say, look, here's the transaction history. It came from here, went there, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a little bit harder, although I wouldn't say it's impossible. It's a little bit harder when you've got this like anonymous black money, essentially black. Right. Um, so then you have to look at, okay, well, if you want to buy a house, how are you going to do that? You know, then then it gets a little bit more complicated and there's kind of a workaround but um you know i do think that this wait what's the workaround i want to hear it uh i don't know if they like so so one way is like you would need we would need to have like some kind of cash on ramp and off ramp to darkfi so um like really nice way of doing that is uh through the atm networks the crypto atms okay we have a friend who's been working on a um uh, an open source hardware ATM machine. Really? Um, yeah, which will be beautiful to have like a dark fight at some point, you know, um, accessible on there. Um, but, you know, we're, we're very early stage. Sure. But, um, you know, that would be one way. 
um you know another way like um i don't know like for example if people are using exchanges and they're making say they made a bunch of money trading or whatever then they don't have a transaction history they can't prove empirically this is where the money came from because it's on an exchange right so they it's a little bit more like gray area so i think in that case they might be providing screenshots or something Hmm. you know so if the whatever entity that you're interacting with is comfortable with screenshots as like a proof then there might be a way for example to like take screenshots of you know your app or whatever and like try to try to construct like some kind of a transaction history yeah this is fascinating so like i'm just trying to think this through like so i go into dark fi let's say i you know uh make a million dollars like trading on dark fi i have a million like dark coin whatever you want to call it and then i'm like oh, okay great i want to buy a house and now if let's assume this like hyper regulated you know uh prosecutorial world where i'm not let's say it's it's, it's banned right let's say my dark coin is, is illegal basically mm-hmm. but i have a million dollars worth of dark coin and i want to buy a house um, if I pull it out into cash, like USD, it'll be flagged and the feds will come get me. But you're saying there might be a, there's a way to there might be buy a way. that house there with might be my a way. dark coin yes. in a way that's not traceable. Well, so to say more about that. Well, what I think would be really cool would be as the end goal would be like, there are actually markets on DarkFi where you can buy a house. Oh, right. Like that would be, a, that would be an end goal as in you have these kind of like, um, right. So the seller of the house would be like in marks. a marketplace that would just accept. Yeah. Right. Right. Interesting. For example. Um, but you know, otherwise, yeah, I don't know. There could be the conceive of ways that you might be able to somehow, uh, have that, to have that change into another currency somehow, you know, in like, for example, one thing which would be cool would be if you had a bridge to somewhere like a white chain network, which was like had plausible deniability. That would be fucking amazing. Whoops. Sorry. I don't know if I was supposed to swear, swear. but um, the like, for example, what if your bridge was like an AMM? So, so like Torchain is doing these kind of bridges. Um, then maybe, you know, it's less obvious where there's money com- coming from. And so you could just say those darks were actually just ETH that you bought on an AMM. Or um, like, are, what are coin joins? Would that be relevant for coin join, this type of thing? Coin join is a, a privacy technique. It's uh, used on Bitcoin. So like Wasabi and, and Samurai Wallet. Uh, it's anonymity set is like usually around five. So it's like as in, it's like you and five other transactions they call mix-ins um i think so it's actually quite small compared to like um the uh, anonymity you get with monero or zcash what is an anonymity set or is this like that's a scale like, you're it's like a one to ten or what are you no it's to? like uh so the way that coin join works is like we basically mix you get your transactions or a bunch of different transactions you mix up the inputs and the outputs in like a big soup right and then whatever comes out of that is like a weird mix and it's like uh, the idea is that it's not linkable right. with the money that, that went in um but but it's in not practice, strong enough it's not strong enough because there's only five actual other transactions that you're being mixed with so it's like okay what if one of them was actually a fed or what if all of them were and then you know you can like try okay. to de-anonymize it's basically not enough uh and also it's like once you have machine learning and like ai and stuff like that uh 
then it gets it gets more intense so I see. um it gets harder so so like Monero for example it's got an Omni set of 16 um that's maybe not uh enough depending on your threat model but what um, does set refer to in these 16 versus 5 this is just like the, these the number, the number of, of of mix-ins like the number it. the number of other transactions that you're being mixed in with okay um in the case of Monero, which uses ring signatures and coin join it's like a similar technique you're like mixing the inputs and the outputs okay but in in zk snarks this is kind of a sidetrack but in zk snarks the anonymity set is actually the height of the merkle tree okay um so that's a really cool feature because i mean like um you know your merkle tree it's like how your data is stored um and the you can define it in basically what's called a circuit in in zk you define your 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 merkle tree uh depth and then uh if you want to increase that it's logarithmic so instead of on monero uh it's actually a linear increase um if you wanted to for example double the what i mean by that is if you want to double the ring size on um on monero you have to d- double the compute time that it takes to you know run that that ring so it's like linear whereas on the zk snarks if you want to double um the the anonymity set you just increase the um the merkle tree um height from like two to the power of 32 to two to the power of 33 and then it's like much more so it's much more scalable actually anyway that was kind of um no that's great that's <laughs> i mean we have a lot of you know, engineers in the audience and okay, so I good. Think that, that will be of great interest to a lot of people okay. um and you explain it quite, you know, um, clearly. So I think what people might also be interested to learn more about is you have a kind of interesting history. You were telling me that you were an artist originally in the art world, and then you actually got into crypto through Nick Land. Is that right? I don't hear yes. you don't hear that very often. So maybe you can tell that story. Tell a story. Yeah, sure, I'll tell that story. But combination uh, of like kind of Nick Land, uh, a friend of mine called Paul Din- Dylan Ennis, who's also a philosopher, um, and uh, Julian Assange, and the, and the kind of confluence of these of these thinkers um well let's go let's go in order then so t- tell me yeah. what what specifically did you learn from julian assange yeah so so it was 2015 paul he gave me a, a copy of his book the uh, cypherpunks it's called cypherpunks and freedom of the internet or something um and it's a it's a good book the introduction is amazing super short highly recommend everyone to read um but essentially he says that he describes the current situation of surveillance um, and, you know, he describes it from the perspective of WikiLeaks at war with the surveillance state. Um, And, you know, he also describes how, um, like, WikiLeaks was using these, and cypherpunks in general, was using these techniques, these simple techniques, to counter the kind of complexity um, of of surveillance and the state apparatus that was like enclosing in on them. Um, so you know, encryption. He says, um, it's by some magic of the universe, uh, it's easier to encrypt than it is to decrypt. Um, so he says the universe smiles on encryption, uh, and that quote is a very beautiful quote. Was kind of pulled out. Paul wrote it on the first page of the book, so it was like that quote was like. Really, what drew me into um, to crypto, and this was in the context of also reading Nick Land and being, uh, you know, very interested in um, his uh, some of his. You know, he has this like there's this figure non 
G-N-O-N, which is kind of like the god of, like a dark god of like encryption in a way and like things that break apart and... um, uh, and 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 a kind of self self secreting. How would you say that? Like self encrypted yeah. secrets. Um, well, this is like the Heraclitus quote. Right? Yes, yeah. That nature loves to hide is how it's often um, you know translated. But Nick some somewhere writes about how another way to translate it really would be to say that nature loves to encrypt because uh, the the Greek word is something like krypsis. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. So you know, back when I was working as an artist, I was starting to use these kind of metaphors of encryption uh so i was making artwork using uh pgp and uh like steneography kind of information hiding and that kind of stuff i was really into um uh encryption because i felt like there was this like deep um kind of resonance with um kind of like the history of philosophy but then so like this idea of like the enlightenment being a kind of in darkenment <laughs> mm. uh that that i was that i was interested in or mm. even just like the process of of finding things out being falsely connected to a kind of like lightness when actually it was like more like a descent uh kind of spiral into 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 the dark um so i was really interested in these uh in these concepts in the early days of crypto um and i was also interested in you know accelerationism and uh i i I left our college to basically dedicate myself to crypto because I was like, we have to, uh, is our like, um, like supreme, uh, duty to like accelerate, um, the process and, and, um, like basically emancipate these machines, emerging, emergent machines, uh, that I saw as like, you know, essentially like this decentralization, which was like a kind of liquefying the the current order um liquefy the human security system (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly it was the outside coming in yeah yeah so i was like whoa uh we have to we have to we have to work on this so uh i left um i left art and then went full on into um uh, writing i just started blogging about uh, bitcoin and eat and stuff um in the early days and then after doing that myself for about a year i uh i got a job at coindesk and then um worked there but coindesk was um you know it's like coming coming from crypto coming to crypto from this perspective of the cypherpunks and you know the perspective of land and then seeing what the reality of crypto was was kind of a shock because you know uh, we we've got consensus this week um is it it's and i and i in a way it's improved since the first consensus i went to but um it's very um kind of there's a there's an emptiness there's a there's a kind of a just a just an empty um kind of hunger like where it's just like um pure kind of capitalist uh nonsense basically not even just what i was talking about at the beginning of the talk right that um this is crypto culture right now today it's just this very um it's a it's a relatively bland saccharine kind of you know naive um general culture right yeah. that's all you're really you're not you're not like uh criticizing coindesk per se but that's no, just no, no, the, no. the 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 air that we're all breathing right now yes. in crypto culture yeah i mean coindesk was like really opened my eyes because you know i was interviewing a lot of people i was going to a lot of conferences and so it was really there what i was exposed to to the crypto culture kind of proper um and i was doing a lot of eats uh i was assigned to eat so i was doing a lot of eats conferences and um i was 
kind of disturbed by a lot of them because there was this like I remember I went to 2018 to a conference and they were talking about how it was like a Microsoft guy uh, he was talking about how he wants to like tokenize the, his family tree or something and then <laughs> unlock his car with his hand or, and I was like what? <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of this talk and I got increasingly disenfranchised which was actually a really good thing because it kind of broke my spirit and that made me uh you know kind of put me on the path toward like good radicalization uh where um you know i went in 2018 i went to see amir uh taki who i'm still working with on darkfy um and basically said you know like whatever you need um and at that time more or less at that time you know what was needed was to go to syria because uh, uh erdogan was threatening an invasion of the north syria um uh, Kurdistan region uh, so there was an impending threat invasion so we went we left and um, I was there for a year and when I was there I, I learned uh, C++ which you know I later learned when I got back I started learning Rust and I started then um, basically we started creating DarkFi uh, okay. in its current form fascinating and yeah. and so how did you meet Amir I uh, went, by the way and yeah and, and what's he like um, Amir's great. I, I went to uh, I meant to, to to interview him in 2018 with CoinDesk's kind of permission. Um, it was actually I, I I I my spear was broken. I told CoinDesk I wanted to leave, and they said um, they said stay, but just write about whatever you want. So I said, okay, I want to write about uh, Amir Taki. Will you will you um, you know pay for the plane? <laughs> and they said yes. So that's around the time I went. Um, and uh, Anyway, yeah, Amir's Amir's great. He's a very inspired person, um, and he introduced me to the work of uh, Abdulachlan. Um, Can who, you real quick give a give a quick summary of Amir's like career up to that point and what he's known for? Yeah, absolutely. People might not know. I feel totally. like people don't know his name as well. People as they don't should. know. They yeah. don't know Amir, uh, which is shocking. But it's part of this whole thing about like the kind of whitewashing of the crypto industry. Right. And but uh, but Amir's like super important uh, figure to kind of reckon with because a large part of why we identify Bitcoin and crypto with crypto anarchy and cypherpunk is due to his efforts like continuously throughout the years. Um, so, you know, he, he joined crypto Bitcoin in uh, 2010, very early. He was one of the first people to talk with Satoshi. Um, he was at the time he was a professional poker player and he wanted uh, to build a poker site. So he he's a he's a programmer, but he got into poker um, and he wanted to build a poker site. He looked at Bitcoin to see if um, it could be adapted for that. And then uh, anyway, he realized what was going on. He was like, holy shit, this is like per permissionless, non-state uh, economy. Um, and so he was like, OK, I'm all in, went all in on Bitcoin then in 2013, he worked together with Cody Wilson to make a Dark Wallet, which was an early, the first CoinJoin implementation. We discussed CoinJoin earlier. Right. Uh, so that was called Dark Wallet. Um, he also made LibBitcoin, which is like the a really beautifully written um, uh, Bitcoin implementation. Uh, but anyway, um, he... And he made it. He made a bunch of stuff, but the the dark wallet thing is most relevant here. So with Cody, he made the dark wallet. They have some excellent propaganda on YouTube from the time, uh, where Cody has his famous line, "Let there be dark," which you know we still use today. Um, and so uh, then, uh, in and around 2015, 
I think it was, uh, Amir saw what was happening in, in north of Syria. You know, it's also called Rojava, where I mentioned I went to. Um, and basically said, like, you know, he you know he's an anarchist. Or, uh, so he was like, I can't not go and, like, dedicate myself to this anarchist revolution. If I didn't go, I'd be a hypocrite. So he went and... Um, then he was there for a number of years. He came back in 2017, uh, which is, I met him around that time. Uh, and then we went back together in, um, I think it was late 2018. And um, so then by the time, by the time he came back to Europe the first time, people were saying to him, what's up with Dark Wallet? You know, we need uh, privacy anonymity on Bitcoin. So he started to see, because he saw at this point that CoinJoin was basically broken. Like it was the in twenty thirteen it was believed to be anonymous, but by the same way Bitcoin by the way was believed to be anonymous in the in the early days. But then you know it was discovered that actually it's not uh, it's not fully robust against machine learning and other kinds of de-anonymization tactics. So um, he started to research what could be a better method. Um, he started he he systematically implemented all of the anonymity techniques that exist in crypto today, including uh, stuff like Mimblewimble, uh, ring signatures, um, the uh, coconut credentials. Um, what else? Like basically, all of the techniques that he could find, he implemented. He built an implementation into dark um, wallet or what? No, just as tests. So all he was right. like, okay, make it with ring signatures. What happens if we set the ring size to a hundred? what happens, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so he discovered a bunch of stuff. He realized that none of the techniques, Mimblewimble is not anonymous. Ring signatures, you need a ring size of infinity in order for it to be like fully anonymous. Um, all of the techniques were in a f like not good. Uh, credentials, we nearly did as DarkFi, but then we realized with ZK Snarks, we could be way more flexible. So ZK Snarks basically were decided upon um, because they are like by far the most uh, flexible uh, and, and anonymous and scalable uh, privacy anonymity available in crypto. Okay, and so, why did Dark Wallet fail? Or what was the limitation of that? Because I'm assuming it did, just like I don't hear about it. But. It, yes, it didn't, it didn't fail. Like there was a, basically a demo or a kind of beta product that was released. But then basically Amir left to Syria and the team that he left developing on the project kind of lost their lost their will. Although there was a there was a beta product delivered, so you know it could have been, but somehow it didn't get maintained. You know he was then he wasn't there, the team wasn't on it. Um, and then, but you know, Darkfi is very much an evolution of this because by the time Amir came back and was like, okay, let's sort this out, see what's going on, then he was like, okay, it can't be it can't be um, can't be coin join. It has to be. ZK Snarks and while we're at it you know ZK Snarks is programmable so we can actually have anonymous applications not just money that was the kind of arc right okay fascinating yes fascinating so I guess the idea of using ZK Snarks to enshroud like ETH in privacy or something like that was considered not viable um well you know actually that was something I wanted to mention there are projects doing that um and this is a very this potentially could be a way to for example to have like deniable bridging oh, right. um to darkfi but the there's some really great projects tornado cash is cool expensive though zk money i use it all the time it's uh on eth that's the aztec network okay 
Aztec Network are basically doing what you're describing, although the only thing they have right now is the uh, the ZK money, which is like you can, uh, you put money in, it's like a layer two, um, completely anonymous, you break the link between your transaction that you put in and then you can w- withdraw the money to anywhere. So it's it's the most it's the most advanced, sophisticated anonymity technique available in crypto, in my view, like uh, aside from basically Zcash shielded transactions, but it has its own issues. Anyway, uh, we're we're not we're not doing that though because um, no, we wanted to to do a, a layer one. We think it's a even though there's a lot of kind of um, there's some some people with doubts that they think it should be it should be on ETH, you know, because that's where the money is and stuff. Having a layer one just allows us a lot more flexibility um and also it's like having a blockchain i think it has a a false reputation as being like a big deal technically but it's not a big deal technically like we have a we have a blockchain we had a dev write one like what it's not super complicated we're proof of stake by the way which would be nice um so so that's pretty much the the reasoning sure okay yeah that's fascinating i mean i kind of want to ask you the the basic bitch question of let uh, that like a normal a lot of normal people will think like listening to this talk which is like you know but wait a minute aren't you going to be supporting criminals and enabling all this kind of bad behavior and um you know talking about plausible deniability with glee you know it sounds it sounds pretty naughty to the average person it's like uh what do you say to someone who's like you know rose why are you trying to enable criminals to you know do anything untracked what do you say what do you how do you how do you think about that how do you respond to that very common kind of uh, perspective do you know the yes chad meme (laughs) so 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 i think that's hilarious tell me more about that attitude and that philosophy um that you're just like owning it you're just like yeah let anyone do whatever they want is that your position is that your perspective yes yes i mean it's like um I think that those those things like people shouldn't, for example, uh, like cr- criminal activity, like say, uh, sell drugs or whatever. I think that decision of like selling drugs that should come upward from the people. You know, like we as a, a people are going to uh, make this like um, kind of mutually agreed upon law that we don't sell drugs. Um, but you know having the the current way where it's like kind of top down i don't think it works i don't think it's it's a it's a way to govern society um i think it needs to come from the people so that's why i support like having anonymous enclaves where people can define their own laws define their own destinies um and assert their own morals like their own values because um like essentially you know i mentioned Ochilan, uh and and his main shtick is like freedom like in his definition of freedom he says basically freedom is is the ability of a people to define their own values um and that's not possible within like this the state-based system essentially uh so so really like having anonymous environment that's what's at stake in that you know it's 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 allowing giving people the space um where they can actually define their own destinies right and this is kind of like just classical anarchism essentially it's like you know yeah sure with absolute radical freedom people can do bad things but that's a kind of like short-term limited cost that we have to pay for humans to actually be able to you know determine their own fate and that if you actually allow people to do that that in the long run uh everything will be on net you know much better and less harmful yes and also like um 
now at the moment most of the actual like for example child porn it happens on facebook it doesn't mm. happen on the dark net really? so it's like yes huh. um everything that goes on on like the dark net is happening on the clear net like way more whatsapp telegram facebook well i've never um, heard of that yeah uh some statistic that i read um but yeah so it's um i don't think that anonymity is necessarily a catalyst for like uh, bad things you know and i also have um like optimism and like faith in people and i don't think that uh that it's like we need to um like persecute everyone with this like invasive surveillance um in order to protect us you know it's like no like i i believe that people can like live ethically um and that the ethics should come from themselves and not be imposed on them um so i see that as like it's it's almost like the the aff affirmative position because the negative one is like it's like no uh people are inherently bad we should stop them you know we should impose restrictions we should put everything on online in the clear net um whereas the affirmative thing is just like yes you know like the yes chad just like um like let uh let the people um do their like do their things fulfill their destinies right um and you know let that arise from them organically like it should like in 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 the, in the kind of spirit of affirmation right yeah. right that's fascinating i mean i think when a lot of people look at the privacy stuff the dark net stuff there's a kind of impression that it's it to a lot of people it feels like doomed almost Whereas you have the opposite attitude. You feel like this is destiny. This is, you know, within the the order of nature that, um, you know, uh, the universe smiles upon encryption and that you actually feel like DarkFi has this amazing kind of natural organic um, push behind it that will favor it and make it win in the long run. But I think a lot of people see it the exact opposite. They, they look at people like Julian Assange. They look at people like Ross Ulbricht. They look at people like you know, even our mutual friend, Cody Wilson, you know, and, and what people see is mostly like people getting in trouble all of the time <laughs> and like being held back and, um, things generally not going, uh, swimmingly basically, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I would love to just talk about this a little more because I kind of share your almost eschatological, uh, faith in, in these things as well. But I also like on an empirical level, when you just look at the situation, it's like, I also sympathize with people who are kind of like, um, this stuff's always going to be on the back foot. It's always going to be just dealing with repression and suffering. And, um, you know, how do you, what do you say to people like that? How do you think that through? Sure. Um, well, like I, I just, I like to look at history and like, you know, not feel like, cause the, the kind of the current order it likes to define itself as kind of eternal and, um, you know, inevitable and the kind of like unstoppable. But actually, you know, when you look at history and also when you look more closely at like the kind of um, the whole way that like the current like geopolitics is playing out, like there there are, there is, um, uh, there is a kind of life cycle to empires, you know, and um, there's, there's huge gaps in human history where you didn't have like these, um, uh, these like super dominant uh, state-like um, uh, um, civilizations, right? Like medieval Europe, for instance, was like a highly fragmented patchwork. Yes, yeah, that for example, and actually, you know, this is a big part of what um, Ochlan talks about in his books, where he basically says like um, there's these 
there's like a parallel history of what he calls free society, which you also find this similar uh, kind of rhetoric in other um, anarchist uh, philosophers like Samuel L. Konkin from from the agorists. Like he also says there's free society and then there's a state-based society and we should like do this kind of archaeology of free society to see like where 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 it existed, you know, like and and at various points there's these like uh, pockets of free society that kind of pop up and then they f- fade out and there's right. a kind of like ongoing uh, dialectic between these like two forces of like free society and state-based society one winning out over the other um, and so you know we're now in a time where we're seeing like the limit of this um this like state-based civilization which has according to Ochlan its origins in ancient Mesopotamia we're basically seeing the limits of that and you know we're seeing it breaking down at the edges um so there's like a lot of examples of this like for example the U.S. losing in Afghanistan against um like well they basically lost every war you know since Vietnam but um you know, this is against like a, a, a like Al Qaeda, non-state actors in flip flops, basically. So, you know, you can see even though there's this there's this kind of myth that the that the current order is like all pervasive and eternal and and uh, you know unstoppable. Actually, it's breaking down, and and we're we're living in a time where it's breaking down, and it's it's breaking down. You know, kind of combination of factors, but it's it's kind of like the more at the point you're at the point of history where the more um sophisticated and and like powerful the thing be- seems is actually the, the the point where it's like it's breaking down it's wow. actually the point okay. where it's most weak so you know yeah i think that's i think that's the era that we're that we're living in and yes though it does mean that um you know in this kind of i guess transitionary phase like we we see we will see a lot of martyrs you know mm. uh you mentioned ross Ulbricht, assange um, and you know, there's there's many others uh, beside uh, who've kind of given their their lives in pursuit of freedom. Um, so I, you know, that's that's definitely a risk. But um, I would encourage everyone to watch Cody's recent speech, "The Death Athletic." He gave a kind of beautiful um, uh, argument for for why actually putting yourself on the putting your own life on the line is kind of key to um, like revolutionary struggle. Um, that's awesome. I'll check yeah. that out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're saying is very, very exciting and, and quite compelling, you know, because what you were saying about how there have always been pockets of kind of anarchistic freedom kind of flourishing um, in these brilliant ways. But in history, they do have a bad habit of kind of going away pretty quickly. But in some ways, the blockchain revolution and perhaps the ZK snark revolution on top of it does really represent possibly like this world historical rupture, perhaps. This is what I think you're kind of alluding to, where perhaps, you know, the the model of top-down state control has is really now reaching an absolute uh, climax where um, we are not just going to see a kind of flourishing of, of, of pockets of true anarchist freedom, but they're actually going to be able to, for the first time ever, constitute their own kind of counter empire in a way because that that's basically what we're talking about like if dark wins if zk snarks become ubiquitous and, and things like dark really really win we're talking about that the small little pocket of anarchist freedom in like the forests or the jungles of like some you know uh backwater country becoming its own kind of counter global empire like run on its own incentive systems basically without a top-down leader um so that's 
it's that seems to be like the what you're betting on in a way. Am I am I am I going in the right direction there? Yeah, I'd say that's you know the right direction. But I would emphasize that like I don't I don't see it as a kind of a hegemonic. Uh, dark empire in a way but more like a federation of like many small pockets of and and this is a little bit like the agorist because what you described it reminds you of the agorist uh kind of vision where um if you read the the manifesto it's um the new libertarian manifesto by samuel l conkin it's on archive it's really good um and he describes like the the various phases basically to agorist domination um and it starts off with these kind of pockets I think he calls it low density agorist society, where there's these like small breakaway agorist societies. And then it basically passes through like these various uh, phases where uh, it goes from this low density to being this, you know, like dominant, um, dominant empire. Um, so, yeah. Right. By empire, I, I just mean a large global, global yeah. um, economy. Basically. So it can be a kind of patchwork or like a mosaic. Right. It could be, or... be federated. It could be patchwork. It yeah. could be whatever. My point just being for the first time ever, perhaps with the blockchain revolution and the ZK Snark revolution combined, um, suggests is that this like small – what used to be these small momentary flashes of anarchist brilliance mm. uh, that fizzle out very quickly, maybe for the first time now, they can they can actually sustain and multiply into this like crazy large sustainable global economic uh, kind of counter economy or something like that. Yes. But I, I do think I, I wonder if you agree that it is essentially a bimodal distribution, like the the, the probability distribution or the out, the potential outcomes are highly bimodal in my in my view. And in, in, in by that I mean. It's like either the dark fire revolution is going to take off and it's going to be this like really crazy, novel, unstoppable, you know, thing with positive feedback loops becoming bigger and bigger and more and more unstoppable until it sucks up almost everything or it's going to get crushed. Do you, you know, and and both both outcomes are conceivable, um, but it's hard for me to imagine a middle ground. It's hard for me to imagine where there's like half of the global economy is this like, you know, clear web um thing and then half of it is like this dark net market mm. that doesn't seem like the a possible equilibrium or is it oh uh, well i think that's like a temporary yeah i agree with you it's like temporary that's like a phase that will pass through and then it will either be crushed or will will succeed um but i see both uh outcomes as like as like desirable um it's it's like through the i believe that even if dark fight is crushed um like that will again be like become a catalyst for a future victory you know like actually in 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 um in ireland in when when there was the war of independence before the war of independence there was a failed revolution where in 1916 a couple hundred revolutionaries were like we're going to take on the british empire and <laughs> you know they, the they Easter, got their weapons the Rising, yes exactly about, yeah. and they you know they occupied buildings in dublin and basically the the british forces like like circled formed a circle around and like slowly um like honed in on the like pockets of resistance and crushed them like basically suffocated and they were able to do that the because post they office, were, right yes the gpo i've yeah. been there yeah it's awesome oh nice yeah uh, amazing um yeah they crushed it and uh they were able to do that because they had like a much more uh, supreme force and they were, you know, in that kind of com- in, ca- in that kind of warfare where they're like, you know, f- like a what you call it direct clashes, then they it, it wasn't going to work out for them. So that failed. And then the leaders of the uprising were executed. Almost all of them, bar two, basically, were shot. And this 
had a huge effect on the Irish population. It, it basically made it so that Ireland had been a place where um, a lot of the normal people were kind of tolerant of Britain. They were they were suffering and subjugated, but they also didn't want a war. They were like, so they thought like oh, the revolutionaries, they're like idealists, but we're not like all in on, you know, their revolution or anything. But when they executed the leaders, that had a, like a, a major shift in public opinion in favor of the revolutionaries. Basically the whole of Ireland became guerrilla and then when uh then that actually one of the survivors began a guerrilla warfare campaign and irish ireland achieved like a partial independence in the space of two years following the the guerrilla warfare campaign so it's like it's like even somehow even a failed revolution is still it it okay it, it either succeeds or it becomes part of the history of struggle that will embolden like a later effort to succeed. Right. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating because I'm, I'm kind of a Christian anarchist myself and in the Christian nice. anarchist tradition, there is a similar kind of uh, eschatological expectation, this kind of deep uh, faith or confidence that, you know, in the long run, it's like the, everything gets worse and worse and the prospects for, you know, uh, you know the the church and and the community of believers is expected to get worse and worse and worse and worse and that's basically the apocalypse like it's it's uh in the apocalyptic times uh it's sort of prefigured in the christian theology that um there's going to be less and less christians they're mostly all going to get you know murdered and it's going to be like really crazy and bad but at, at like the very at the apex of it all at the in the very final moment at the at the end of time basically hmm. um the 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 few remaining believers uh, will be will be you know the ones who uh ascend to the kingdom of heaven and that kind of you know it's a very similar structure to what hmm. you're saying whether one's christian or religious or not at all um there's there's a similar there's a very similar kind of structure of belief and, and historical expectation mm. in the Christian anarchist tradition. And, you know, the anarchist wing of that is basically just like, you know, you don't have to submit to any earthly power. You have to just basically, you know, trust in the plan, trust in the process mm. and, um, and all will be, you know, taken care of. So it's very fascinating because uh, it's a very, it's a very similar kind of mental model that a lot of these more atheistic and anarchistic um, wings you know, are are surprisingly aligned on on a similar mm. model. I think that's interesting. Yeah, um, I think that also, like, I I changed my mind about this. Um, so like, so so you said just now that the Christ in the Christian uh, imaginary, the that that process unfolds kind of automatically, or does it require like intervention in order to like on behalf of the believers to happen? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I mean, there's lots of disputes and there there are there are different interpretations. Obviously, the concept of free will is is important in kind of the most classical interpretations of of like Christian theology. But there are lots of different spins on this and um you know, there are actually a, quite a lot of sophisticated readings in the cr- Christian tradition that actually actually are really quite close to a kind of almost like landian accelerationist like uh inhumanism where where like it's mostly process um so it's it's there nice. i think there's a lot of room for debate on this i mean yeah. i find gerard's uh reading of this very very interesting if you mm. if you look at especially the late work of rene gerard um you know he talks about how basically um this is all like baked into christian theology like christianity he says is the only religion that 
predicts its own failure that that's mm. that sees that it's doomed um and so long as you know on earth like christianity is always going to lose in a sense um and and it's almost it's almost uh prefigured that 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 will happen um and so i find that i find that very kind of interesting it's mm. just it, it rhymes a little bit with what you're saying totally. where you're like you're super cool with the idea that like dark fight is going to get crushed once or twice or three times or 10 times, but in the, it doesn't shake your, your fundamental conviction mm. in its absolute inevitability. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But I guess, you know, where I, where I, where I became less Landian in a way was like this idea, this idea of it being inevitable and therefore not having to do anything, you know, like, um, whereas actually, you know, you do need to be, you know, in the in the thing that I'm describing now, I, I see it as like you do need to be active. You do need to kind of actively engage the the with this, you know, process in order for it to unfold. Like I don't see it as necessarily happening by itself. Right. Um so you know, that's where a little bit when I kind of shifted from like a more Landian view into like this uh, thinker Achalan, it was this idea that you can actually change you can actually influence the fate and like the direction of the future through like like your revolutionary activity basically and i'm sorry i didn't quite ask so ochland is uh like a kurdish theorist or yeah tell the story a little more yes yeah, sure so uh 1970s um there was a lot of um kurdish movements i'll, I'll actually backtrack a bit so you know kurdish identity has existed for um, like millennia it's an ancient language one of the oldest uh, ancient culture um, and ethnic group um, but they've been trapped between these four countries before it was two it was the Ottomans and the other empire can't remember the name and then it now it's four countries since like in the past 100 years um, and they've been you know repressed because you know basically part of the function of the state is like it has to deny uh, things that contradictions that it can't integrate so it's like no uh you can't be kurdish can't have kurdish language um so in the 1970s there was student movements in uh turkey to establish kurdish uh more kurdish autonomy and and uh, democratic um recognition and basically they were they were brutally crushed um a lot of the leaders were executed others were imprisoned and one of the prisoners basically decided while he was in prison that he couldn't um use the democratic process and like protest in order to achieve autonomy he had to basically assert it so he left prison he went to the mountains and he founded the guerrilla movement pkk oh okay uh and that's abdullah achlan okay um so then you know decades past they 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 continue to engage like a highly effective um guerrilla war um in in the mountains and and in turkey uh, and basically in the, uh, about 20 years ago, um, uh, Achlan was uh, arrested um, and brought to a prison island off of Turkey, one man prison island, and he's been there for 20 years. Um, and he, while he was there, he wrote these fascinating texts. And there, so it's like, there's a few of them. There's a five part manifesto and there's two books which came prior to the manifesto um, and these were all like smuggled out essentially as his defense to the European courts 
Um, so he was like, I have the opportunity to write a defense. I write a five part manifesto, like full on books, uh, which he talks about like the history of civilization. Wow. Uh, and they're like super deep. And, and as a consequence of these books, the PKK had like a complete internal restructuring, like philosophical restructuring, hmm. because it had been more kind of traditional Marxist Leninist and also in the idea of like we want um Kurdish we want a Kurdish nation state as essentially, you know, we want a nation. Same way that Ireland and most of the revolutions of the twentieth century were about establishing independent nation states. So after basically what Ochlan says is like the it's the nation state itself that's that's the problem. So we need to evolve like new political forms uh, in order to like in order to, for people to be free so like even if kurdish people were to have a nation state they would they would still not be free they would still be trapped like by the nation state paradigm mm. so like his books are all about describing you know how do we be, how do we move beyond this you know and there are there is a lot of um in a way you know these kind of religious undertones like as you as you mentioned this um, he, you know, he comes across as a kind of prophet, hmm. like uh, he, and and it's interesting because the Middle East, you know, is this very spiritual place that has a long legacy of prophets, um, you know, writing these like like amazing texts, like these very futural, futural texts, and when you read his books, you do get the sense of like, um, you know, this is this is like coming backwards from the future. It has this like prophetic, uh, waste to it, um. And and another interesting aspect is, you know, uh, if you've read the um, the the Leo Strauss on on hidden writing, very right. There's that book, uh, Persecution and the Art of Writing, right. is the name of the essay. Um, he's writing the books in a context where, like, um, a lot of the time, uh, he has a pen, but he has to like smuggle them out of a prison cell. So they've been viewed. You can imagine they've been viewed by all sides, kind of thing. Um, so. There's a few consequences. One is that he doesn't have access to an editor. Uh, he's only allowed one book at a time. Um, so, you know, he's he's pretty limited when compared to normal uh, kind of writers. Um, and he, he's like, so he actually memorizes like huge amounts of texts from books so that right. he can uh, write it. He's like memorizing so he can write. Um, and, you know, all of these constraints, I actually think, make him a even more exceptional hmm. uh, thinker. Um, but... Uh, he so inside those texts, I believe that there are hidden messages. Wow. Um, it's like there's a there's one reading which is you can read it as the European course, and you can see the texts uh, of Achlan as like um, a very kind of um, uh, how to say um, like a very nice um, kind of essay on the on the value of democracy. Uh, very pro-Western, like pro-Western, pro-enlightenment kind of vibe. Um, but then there's like a subtext, which is uh, ex ex highly radical and revolutionary. And I and I also think there's other subtexts, like hmm. even more kind of encrypted, which in which he's talking to like his comrades directly, um, because he doesn't have a line of contact, or he he kind of does, but you know this is it would be a good opportunity to give some high level strategy. Uh, Have these been published as books? In English They're yet? publishing books in English. Oh, cool. Only the first three are translated okay. uh, of the manifesto. The prison writings have been translated. Um, but the first three are already great. Um, first one, civilization. Talks about the history of civilization coming back to the Neolithic until now. The, he talks about how the nation state emerges. The second one uh, is called Capitalism. 
history of capitalism again like starting in 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 uh, neolithic all the way to present day super interesting and then three which i'm in process of reading it's called the sociology of freedom um and that's where he gives his like what i was talking about earlier his really interesting definitions of what freedom is I see. and is, is he still alive yeah, he's alive. Yes. He's alive. He's um he's Does old he, like, now. Mess with crypto. <laughs> oh, I wish. No. Like, I mean, he's like, you know. I'm sure someone's asked him like, "What do you think about crypto? Maybe. How, how should we, you know, um, you know, instantiate uh, privacy technology on crypto?" I mean, <laughs> no. No, I don't. I don't think so. there's not much contact like with. Right. Uh, it's it's not like even you know someone like Ross like you can kind of you can can you can write letters yeah. you know there's none of that. Wow. Yeah, he's like he's like next level uh, incarcerated. He's on an island all by himself. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. But I'm sure that like there are prison guards like with yes. him. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, around there'd be prison guards on the island for sure. I mean, that's like pretty Chad to be put on an island by yourself. Like you're so yes. dangerous. They're so afraid of you. Yes. They're like not even going to put you on the same piece of land as other yes. people. Yeah. And you see this a lot when uh, with like revolutionaries who are in prison, basically that like. They're seen as so dangerous because they have this like ability to they have this like power of like of thought and of speech that they can actually uh change the behavior of the people around them. You know, they can actually radicalize people right. just by talking to them. Like so, uh, well, like Napoleon after his downfall, they stuck him on an island. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's what that's what the state has to do. But um it's it's very sad and you know, for the Kurdish people especially, um it's it's like it's like they they have a const they're in constant pain for, from his incarceration. Especially like what's beautiful is in the in the third book in the introduction, you know he says like he's standing against the kind of the individualism of that's like you know the West has made this like center of society. It's like I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not Abdullah Achlan who's like on trial. It's the Kurdish people themselves mm. that like on trial like through me. Um, which I thought was really beautiful. So was going to um, see the Kurds and hang out with the Kurds and spend time with them and work with them, was that uh, very transformative for you? Yes, totally. Seems like it. Yeah, yes, I, get, yeah. I get that impression. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, it really put me on the straight and narrow. Um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I would love to go back. Um, the people, it's like the people that you meet there, they're, they've suffered a lot. But they have this incredible kind of um, like uh, like calm, almost like monk like. They they have this like inner light, which is like yeah, they're like glowing with their like conviction. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really something to behold. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think I only have one more question for you, which is, okay. um, yeah, you're in town for consensus yes. conference, uh, where I'll be speaking as well. And yes. So I'm just curious, what is your talk going to be about? Yeah. So some of the talk, some of the things that I discussed here. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, actually guerrilla um, guerrilla warfare and encryption and the kind of connections between them. And wow. so arguing basically encryption as a kind of guerrilla warfare or guerrilla tactic. And then I'm also actually going to talk about Nietzsche. Um, so I've been reading the book, uh, Deleuze's book on Nietzsche. It's called Nietzsche and Philosophy. Yeah. Nietzsche and Philosophy. I know it. Uh, and you know he talks about uh, creative and reactive forces, mm. um, which I found really compelling. Especially the idea that like you know you have these active forces which are like affirming difference, and they kind of tend toward differentiation. And then you have these reactive forces which are denying difference, and like which are like these kind of uh, hom homogenies, and they have a way of like 
of integrating active forces and like making them reactive mm. um and then you know like Nietzsche he uses the eternal return to kind of rescue this like this tragedy of like this you know becoming reactive so he's like no with the eternal return it's like that which is reactive basically dies mm. and you just have this like proliferation of 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 the active which is like you know becoming and like the being of becoming the return which Deleuze is really into um so I basically talk about that and I, and I connect it to um basically this idea of like anonymity and surveillance and like you know guerrilla resistance and the state fascinating um, cool yeah. I'll, I'll be there for that for okay, sure. I'm good. intrigued yeah well I I mean I I think we have to give some credit to Coindesk because it seems like they're trying pretty hard actually to move away yes. from the saccharine, yes. you know, wag me like ETH cults if they're inviting people like you and me. And so yes, absolutely. So, you know, my hat's off to them. Yes. And I'm, I'm quite intrigued actually, uh, more so than I would be otherwise when I when I kind of notice that there's a lot of people like you and I there. So uh, it should, yeah. be, should be fun. Totally. Yeah, cool. So, um, yeah, people can go check out DarkFi. Is yes. the best place to send people. Is It's just dark.fi, right? Dark. That's Fi. the URL. Yeah, and we're in the process of updating our documentation and stuff. So I'm hoping we'll be a little bit less cryptic and a bit more accessible because we actually want people to understand what we're building. We don't want to be like obscure. Some people were going like, oh, I think they're intentionally being obscure. It's like, no, no, we're just like, we're just a bit behind on documentation. Cool, but, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I, I love the website also, by the way. I like the aesthetic. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah we have a talented art director. Yeah. Um, and you've also written some interesting things in this regard, which I'll, I'll put links to, to cool. your writings. Yes. Um, about um, lunar, what is it? Uh, lunar punk. That's right. That's yes. right. You 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 describe lunar punk in contrast to solar, solar punk. punk. Yeah, yes, and it's yeah. very much along the lines. I think of what we're what, we're what we've been talking about. Totally. So I'll put some links to your writings in the show notes. Thanks so um, much. So people can check that out and and dark fi as well. That's just dark dot fi. All right, Rose. Thanks so much. This thanks is fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, it yeah was, this is great. Thank cool. you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.